The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard is next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this morning we'll be talking about the intersections of science and place, using the lower Penobscot River as an example of that kind of place. We have some guests in the studio who can help us with that uh, topic. David Hart is with us. Uh, He's the director of the I'm going to get all the title right the first time anyway. The director of the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research at the University of Maine. Welcome, David. Great to be here. Gail Zidluski is the president of the Cove Brook Watershed Council and also the coordinator of the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition. And we'll find out both about both of those organizations in a minute. But welcome to you, Gail. Thank you, Ron. And Greg Burr is with us um, in the studio. Greg is with the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Welcome to you, Greg. Good morning. And later on, we'll be talking to Aram Calhoun, who's a professor of wetland ecology at the University of Maine. She's down in Lubeck looking at some um, vernal pool issues, so we'll learn about that um, a little later in the program. And you can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call at any time. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 or 469-0500. Well, the Lower Penobscot is not too far away from our studios in East Orland. Um, I'm not sure if we're, we're probably not in the, the Penobscot watershed um, from this angle, because I think you have to go over a hill to get uh, um, a little further. But Gail's pulling out her map to find out if, if uh, radio station is in the Penobscot watershed. So. Probably not. <laughs> right. We're probably going, draining our, our water into um, Blue Hill Bay, I would right. imagine. Mm-hmm. So, um, first of all, why why um, do we focus on watersheds? Um, we'll start with Gail and, and get a little bit of background there and then, and then um, get David involved. But what's a watershed, Gail? <laughs> a watershed is an area of land that drains into a common area, kind of like what you just mentioned, <laughs> um, that all of the water that drains off of the land that we're on right now drains into Blue Hill Bay. And so when you start thinking about a river, many, most commonly people think about large rivers, for instance, the Penobscot River. Um, you start thinking about some of the communities and small tributaries and rivers along, along the river proper. But there's many, much more water that's associated with a watershed than just um, the river proper. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, if we get back to the Cove Brook watershed, um, Cove Brook is not very long. It's only a, a portion of Winterport. Um, however, the the whole watershed itself consists of about 10 square miles. Mm. So um, a watershed is a much larger area than just a 
a river proper. So we got a, a few showers earlier today, and, and any rain that kind of um, lands on the earth, and if it doesn't just soak into the earth, it's going to drain down into, um, from 10 square miles, it's going to drain down into Cove Brook and then into the Penobscot. That's right. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, um, all of you have slightly different perspectives on, on some of these issues. Um, David, um, maybe we could start a little bit with you and, and uh, what the George J. Mitchell Center is and, and how it approaches issues like watersheds. Well, the Mitchell Center is working to bring together communities and researchers to focus on watersheds, environmental issues more broadly, and to make connections. So when we think about water running off the land and we think about how people influence that or are affected by it, it it provides a kind of framework for thinking, you know, we do all live downstream in one sense and So our actions will affect others, and we have to hope that our upstream neighbors are being good stewards. And I think it really goes to the point of talk of the towns. We're kind of all in this together, and what the Mitchell Center is trying to do is to be a catalyst that links the university's capacity for problem-solving with community needs for solutions. Mm. What's your own background? You've been kind of looking at rivers and river systems for a long time. A very long time. I uh, was captivated by the stream at the end of my street in Northern California, uh, spent more time there than my mother probably wished I would, and went on to get um, a bunch of degrees uh, and my expertise is in rivers and watersheds. But in addition to studying rivers, what I came to realize is that if we're going to learn how to be good stewards and kind of balance community needs and the needs for economic development with making sure we have clean air, clean water, it's going to take a lot more than just the people who have technical expertise in rivers. We're going to need the sociologists and the political scientists and the economists working with engineers and experts in fisheries, really putting our heads together and saying, what do we want the future to be like and how do we make sure we get what we really need uh, Mm. as a kind of way of life? Mm. Gail, how did you get interested in in water and watersheds and and the work that you're doing? Well, I started out as a fish biologist. My formal training is in fish biology. So um, I did some some research in the Penobscot River and um, continued to do more research, went out to the West Coast and worked on Pacific Salmonids and came here and started becoming involved with um, the Cove Brook Watershed Council. Um, Started having some of the same realizations that David mentioned, that um, we need to think about things much broader than specifically a a fish species and needed to start thinking about stepping back and thinking of a broader perspective of where does the clean water come from and what are the effects um, that might impact clean water. And um, we moved here from the West Coast, my family and I, and happened to move into the Cove Brook watershed. <laughs> um, Donna Gilbert, who was the previous president, pointed that out to us, and we started p- to become involved with the Cove Brook Watershed Council, and about a year and a half later, I was the president. <laughs> so <laughs> it works that way, I doesn't am. it? Yes. Right. Right. Well, both of you have kind of moved. David, you've just moved to Winterport as well, as I understand. That's right. So I'm... Uh, I have the great privilege of looking out over the Penobscot River uh, as it goes around Oak Point, and uh, it's a, a gorgeous sight, and it reminds me in a very visceral way of, of what it means to be a steward. Uh, but, but it also just starts to, as I look around and look at Cove Brook coming into uh, 
the Penobscot at, at the cove, it, it just sort of, you know, you start to think, okay, so who lives here? And what, what is it that they want for their communities? Where do they work? Um, are, we, are we making progress in improving people's lives and improving the health of the environment? Uh, uh, how, how are we going to work on this over time? I mean, these are, we're all in this kind of for the long run, I think. You know, we think about being stewards for many generations hence. And so it, it just, a real sense of place uh, once you're kind of living in, I'm finally rooted in one place, and I value the chance to kind of think about these issues in a way that I'm directly connected to. Right, right. What, what, uh, play, place this a little bit in context. The Penobscot is, is a huge river, and it drains um, a third of the state of Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, why focus on the lower Penobscot? Or, or, um, hmm. is th- because a lot of water is coming downstream. Um, who can put the Penobscot and the lower Penobscot in perspective? Is that something you can help us with, Gail, in terms of the, looking at the big picture and then kind of focusing on the lower Penobscot? Um, I can try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, it's all started with the Cove Brook Watershed Council. We're, we're quite centrally located between the ba- what you might call Penobscot Bay and um, the first dam on the river, which is the Beezy Dam. And so when we started thinking way back when about building capacity for, um, for trying to think about watershed issues, um, we started thinking about the lower Penobscot up to v- the Beezy Dam. So that's where our discussion started to, the place where we started to thinking about mm-hmm. things. And I so think it down felt the line, more manageable than trying to do a Penobscot River. Right, at this point, council. and I think... When we think about the watershed, we do certainly need to consider above the the VZ Dam, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I think manageability right now is is the the keyword. <laughs> mm-hmm. So as C- Covebrook and Covebrook um, has another distinction, does it not? In terms of it's a a salmon resource river yes, or stream. Yep, it's a distinct population segment of, for Maine Atlantic salmon. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason that Penobscot is interesting to people is that it does have um, um, salmon that are distinct. That's but, right. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, then that led you to kind of, okay, we can work on our own watershed in Cove Brook, mm-hmm. Winterport, but we need to think about a, perhaps a larger issue. And that led you to, to help begin the process of doing a larger coalition. So talk a little bit about that journey. Well, at the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation provided us some funding to start thinking about what can we do in the lo- in lower Penobscot region, thinking of where G- Cove Brook is geographically located. There were some issues that were occurring in other s- watersheds local or close to Cove Brook, but we felt our capacity wasn't large enough to, to deal with all those issues. So then we started thinking about other nonprofit organizations, conservation organizations, state agencies, et cetera, that, might, that are interested in watershed issues as well. In November, we sent out a letter to approximately 100 folks, um, about 80 organizations that would represent interests in the lower, lower Penobscot region alone um, to see if it was feasible and to see if it made sense to start talking together and coming up with um, similar ideas and coordinating efforts rather than focusing on just maybe a specific locality, trying to think a little bit larger and seeing if that helps capacity in some of these mm. I, re- I was at that meeting, and it was a, a fascinating array of people who mm-hmm. showed up, um, everybody from folks working on the engineers working on stormwater um, right. discharge to environmental um, groups that, that uh, cared about the place. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the kinds of folks who or organizations that you were able to attract to those early meetings. 
Um, the meetings so far have included folks from municipalities. Um, several different towns and cities have been involved, um, as well as state agencies, federal agencies, folks from the university. Um, and I think so far there have been approximately 20 NGOs represented at various meetings. And there have been somewhere between 30 and 50 people at the various meetings we've had. So like you said, it, it, there's a wide diversity of representation, everybody very interested in the idea of clean water mm -hmm. and um, thinking in the broadest perspective of the watershed. So it's been, it's amazing the dynamic that's been in those rooms mm -hmm. when we've gotten together. And what do people, um, it sounds like a silly question, but what do people get out of clean water? <laughs> what, what, what does that translate to in terms of people's everyday lives? I think it's a it's a value. They want to make sure that things are right in their communities, mm -hmm. <laughs> and having clean water is something important to them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's the value there, mm -hmm. and having direct uses of that that okay. water. Okay, so they're they're able to use it for um, uh, drinking. Drinking, yes. Um, they're able to recreate in it or near mm -hmm. it, um, mm -hmm. and not uh, worry about uh, being contaminated in some way. Right. They're able to take fish out of, out of, out of that and eat the fish. Mm -hmm. So the, all of those things are, are things that people say, oh, clean water means many different things, but we're all interested in that clean water. And right. That brings people together. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, David, um, a little bit about um, the Mitchell Center's interest in the Lower Penobscot. For, certainly there are uh, university researchers who have been kind of studying various aspects of the whole river and then uh, more recently um, looking at salmon issues. Absolutely, Ron. The, the Mitchell Center is really trying to bring together what already exists in many different parts of the university, which is a tremendous capacity to help solve problems. And it exists in many different parts of the university, from people that are experts in salmon to people that are interested in land use and forestry and economic development, um, community capacity building. There, there's One of the things that attracted me to the University of Maine was this great diversity of expertise. It, I would say that it complements the diverse groups that are participating in the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition. There's similar breadth of expertise, and one of the things, just like the coalition is trying to bring those together, the Mitchell Center is trying to bring this research capacity, this problem-solving capacity together at the university to work in a way that we really are in teams and we're focused on the needs of stakeholders mm -hmm. in the Lower Penobscot. Of course, the university is also in the Lower Penobscot watershed, so we're a stakeholder and a partner, but I think we see our role in the state as helping communities. We ha that's not always easy. I wouldn't say it's probably always worked as well as the university hoped, but there's a real sense among a lot of faculty. There's over 100 faculty at the university that are environmental experts of one kind or another, and to bring that pool of talent together in partnership with organizations like the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition uh, will make this almost unique in the nation. So it's something I think we'll increasingly become proud of. Mm -hmm. So the, the notion of a, of a, uh, a state university, a land-grant university that's supposed to have this kind of um, outward effort um, to move out into the community, you're trying to, to um, kind of recreate that, it seems like. Probably the early days of the land-grant, everybody knew that um, um, the, the, the economy was agrarian. We were all farming, and there were certainly f um, researchers and, and extension folks like myself that went out and, and talked to people about growing food. You're, you're saying, okay, we, we've got some different kinds of issues. That still exists as an issue, but these environmental kind of complex community issues need to be brought together in some way. 
Right, and your point about cooperative extension is a, is a wonderful one. It's been a great model for lots of help that universities have provided to communities. And now that we see kind of a more complex world in which everything we do, we now understand can influence the environment, the, influ the environment can in turn influence our opportunities, our challenges in communities from the clean water issues to the development and sprawl problems, reminds us that we're going to have to kind of elevate our game, if you will, for working even more effectively in these partnerships. So I would say that the Mitchell Center is trying to work with this whole collection of, of really remarkable faculty to work, say, with Cooperative Extension and make sure that the research that we're doing is effectively focused on community needs. One thing a university can do that lots of other organizations have a little bit more trouble with is to have a long-term view about problems. Faculty are often hmm. at an institution for quite a while, and if they stay committed to these issues, they can work through problems with communities where perhaps initially you're just trying to identify what the problems are. Later on you're saying, well, what are the alternatives we have for coming up with different kinds of solutions? And when you get to the point of implementing a solution, how do you figure out if it works well enough or if you need to go back and make some modifications, say working with municipal ordinances about uh, how to have the right balance of growth with protecting watersheds? If you think about the timeline over which that kind of partnership would need to be in place, it's likely to be five, ten, or more years. Mm. The university's been around a long time. It's going to be around a long time. And I think this is a partnership that can really work. Great. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning here on WERU. Our guests in the studio are helping us with the intersections between science and place, using the lower Penobscot River as an example. And uh, you've just been uh, hearing from David Hart, who's the director of the Mitchell Center for Environmental Watershed and, and Environmental and Watershed Research at the University of Maine. And uh, Gail Zidluski is the president of the Cobrook Watershed Council and coordinating the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition. Well, let's bring Greg Burr into the conversation at this point. Um, Greg is with the Department of English, Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. You see um, some of these issues from a, a, how do we manage natural resources and particularly around fisheries. What's your particular role and, and how do you see these things kind of playing out? For instance, um, do you see, in addition to the kind of what we know currently, are there other questions that, you know, you have, uh, you want some research on, for instance? Well, um, one of the things I, that we're interested in as we look at uh, the, the rest of the United States and in, and, and in particular, Ron, the, the southern Atlantic states where, let's say, eastern brook trout um, range historically was, is that those populations down there have been uh, greatly impacted in a negative way through urbanization. And Maine is one of the last great strongholds for, mm. for wild brook trout. Um, as the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife looks to partner and network with uh, community organizations such as the Lower Watershed Penobscot Coalition, um, we want to uh, work with communities and those organizations to help protect uh, uh, these, these watersheds and protecting clean water and protecting habitats, fish habitats. Um, so if we can, we can partner with these organizations and, and help in um, getting p 
people to understand our perspective in, in managing the wise use and, and management of, uh, of all fish populations, um, I think it's going to benefit the communities. So if we can, we can protect these, these fish, they're going to be here for, for everyone for generations to come. And that, that's what our goal is. Mm. What's, what does a brook trout need? Um, you know, what's in the life of a brook trout? What do they need at various stages in their, sure. in their life history from the environment that they're living in? Okay. They need clean water, of course. They're very susceptible to um, uh, a, a wide variety of, of course, runoffs and pollutants. Um, they need cold water, which is which is very important. Uh, at the critical, one of the critical st- stages of their life is in is in the summertime when our when our surface waters heat up. Um, they need those cold water refugee areas to retreat to, so it gets them through the summertime. They need um, uh, gravel areas to be able to spawn, reproduce, um, t- to um, promote ne- the next generations of fish coming along. And if there's a lot of siltation coming. Coming in that um, that impacts uh, actually embeds that that gravel those interstitial spaces in there that uh, that uh, where uh, oxygen would be able to flow through and help incubate those those eggs uh, if those aren't there they're not, they're not going to be able to spawn uh, and and they're not going to be able to produce the, the next generation of fish coming along so mm-hmm. um, clean water cold water and um, Good, good habitat. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I can imagine that as you know, I, I was in wildlife management as a, mm-hmm. as a student, I said, you know, the wildlife will take care of themselves if we, if we would get our act together, you know, as, as humans. Right. So you must see that all the time and in terms of land use around streams or rivers that's impacting the temperature, for instance. Absolutely. Right. Uh, one of the big issues for us is, is to helping people understand that the riparian zones, those, the, the land that uh, abuts the streams and rivers and things there, it's very crucial to protect those, that we shouldn't encroach on those. We need to have uh, good cover canopies so that uh, we can maintain stream and river temperatures, uh, that we also, that, so that we can also have a good um, a natural recharge of these streams and, and rivers and things because uh, nature, uh, they, they rely on uh, this uh, uh, natural um, stream recharges, water flows at different times in the year. And if you pave parking lots right up to the edges of streams and things, you have just very flashy runoffs. The, the water hits that pavement and goes right into the brook and it peaks very quickly and then it's, and then it's gone. Um, the forest doesn't uh, have a chance to absorb that water and then let it out um, at little bits to a time as well as keep it cool and things. So all those things are very important. Um, but that's, that's one of the critical things that are coming up for us and being able to protect our fish populations is riparian protection. Mm. And my understanding is that the, the Penobscot, the lower Penobscot especially, has good um, brook trout habitat now, but you know, unless we're careful as a, as a society, we're in danger of losing that. Absolutely. Right. There are a number of, a uh, lot of great uh, brook trout streams, not, not talking about just brook trout either. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of native uh, fish communities out there that need to be protected. Uh, the, the lower Penobscot uh, has a lot of great tributaries that comes in there with with all these native fish communities that that need to be protected and we'd also like to have be able to preserve public access along to those waters as well that help benefit those communities i I was a child growing up here in hancock county very fortunate to have grown up on mdi and with acadia national park had that public access to all those those streams and, and rivers and things it was it was terrific and i wish that every community had opportunities like that for uh, the people in them.
Mm. Gail, I, I suppose as you see this larger kind of coalition coming together, you're hearing about all those kinds of interests that Greg just um, outlined, um, the, kind of the, the, the recreational fishermen, um, mm-hmm. the people who want to um, ha- just have access. They want to be, like David, they want to look at um, a, right. a river beca- because he's living on the river. Mm-hmm. And certainly the, the challenge is going to be balancing the uses because there are so many different types of uses that can be along the river systems, especially if you talk about the main stem Penobscot, it becomes a little bit different than talking about some of these smaller tributaries. So Mm. I think the key to the the coalition is that the people at the table include the municipal folks who have to make the the ordinances at the table for the planning boards to, to have an effect. And so they're at the table with us talking about some of these issues and hearing Greg say we need to do such and such. And I think it's that transfer of information that's going to be so valuable. Mm. And so the coalition is one place for that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the researchers and the managers and the, and the users are all in the same room, you can begin to talk together. David, right. that makes sense? Um, and at the university, kind of paralleling what the coalition has been doing, we've created something called the Environmental Solutions Initiative. And that brings this incredible capacity of uh, faculty expertise in different sort of economic, social, environmental facets of these problems, brought them together, brought in a lot of these stakeholders. So we had the people who were from the town of Hamden telling us about the problems the town has. We had former Governor Angus King telling us his perspective about the state's need for improved problem-solving capacity. And going back to Greg's point about here in Maine, we have um, really, I think, Mainers have this strong, deep connection to the environment. They have, in so many cases, been great stewards. But we do face challenges. And he referred to the southeastern U.S. where urbanization has really had a great impact. And not just, of course, on the the natural populations of fish and other wildlife, but you talk to people in, in metropolitan Atlanta, it has one of the biggest sprawl problems in the country. People sit on roads a lot and get stuck in traffic, and they have deteriorating air quality. All of these things are connected. Now, Maine feels far from that to many of us, but I can tell you that the U.S. Forest Service has just issued a report called Forests on the Edge, where they looked at private forest land in the United States and asked, what's the future of this land? And they looked around the country, including the southeastern U.S., and ranked those private forested lands, which of course are most of our forests in Maine, uh, to find out what are the risks of these forests maybe being converted to residential development. They had a top 15, kind of like you go to the post office and see the FBI's most wanted list. I mean, the kind of biggest threats to the health of these watersheds. Three of the top 15 were in Maine, and the number one in the nation was the Lower Penobscot in terms of the projected rate of transformation of, pro- of forested land to essentially residential development. So we have choices ahead, and we can maybe go the way that um, greater Atlanta has gone. Obviously, we're a much smaller state, but nonetheless, we only have to look to the south in Maine to notice that there's kind of something coming our way. There's time here if we get it right, and getting it right, I think, means the right kinds of partnerships, the right kind of what I'll call decision support tools. How do communities look at, uh, evaluate alternative futures? We have faculty that are experts in this. 
who have worked with communities in the past and are even more committed to doing so today. In fact, a group of us right after Gail and I are headed to the state planning office this afternoon to engage in that conversation about how we can help at the state level at the same time as we're working right in our own backyard. Great, great. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about the intersections of science and place, using the lower Penobscot River as an example. You can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call at any point, toll-free, toll uh, 1-866-625-9378, or uh, locally at 469-0500. Give us a call and uh, let, let us know. Um, right now we're going to go to Aram Calhoun. Aram is a, a professor of wet, wetland ecology from the University of Maine but she's now in, I think uh, we're finding her in the town of Lubeck. Welcome to uh, Talk of the Towns, Aran. Hi there, Ron. How are you? Good, thank you. What are you doing in Lubeck? Um, well, <laughs> actually, mostly I'm just working, but I um, did a vernal pool program um, at the Cobbs Cook Center, um, Community Center for Learning last night uh, as part of an effort, an outreach effort that Maine Audubon and the university is doing to educate the public about um, recent significant wildlife habitat legislation. And that, I suppose, um, down that way includes um, shorebirds. It does, (laughs) and uh, me and my students did a presentation for shorebirds um, just a couple of weeks ago down down here. Quite a hot issue. Yes, and well, I I think all over um, the the state we're looking at ways in which we can uh, provide landowners with some choices. Um, You know, some people are saying we need laws to to do that. Others are are working on the educational side. That seems to be where where you find yourself a lot, um, talking about vernal fools and and helping people understand some of the choices that they have as landowners. Tell us a little bit about what vernal pools are as an example of an environmental issue and, and how you approach that issue. Sure, and, and to back up to just to address your last comment, um, what's happening is we're getting a lot of top-down regulation and um, the citizens aren't understanding where this comes from or you know, how it's supposed to be applied to them, and a lot of them haven't been following the issue, so they just learn that suddenly there is, for example, a 250-foot buffer around um, a vernal pool that they now have to get a permit if they want to do anything in. And with the shorebird regulations, the same thing. So a lot of folks obviously aren't following what's going on in the legislature. And so part of our goal is um, to go to communities and explain um, in lay terms the biology and the science behind some of these initiatives and to get citizen feedback on what their fears and concerns are and to help them um, work with these regulations to maintain the town character that they want. But if they don't understand why they're happening, of course there's going to be um, discontent. And I don't think in a lot of times these things aren't explained to the public and they're not brought into the process. And it's it's critical to move from the top-down regulation to grassroots um, empowerment of towns in shaping how they want their communities to look. So when when you work with a community um, uh, in th- that part of the world or in the lower Penobscot where we're doing some focus, um, how do you approach that? How do you get people to think about the kind of community that they want to live in, that they want to pass on to their, their children? Right, and, and let's go back to your vernal pool example because that's where I have a lot of experience working with towns. And the key is to, first of all, give give public presentations on the issue and then we get feedback from the public about um, what their concerns are and try to integrate that into coming up with a solution 
for planning at the local level. And the way to do that is, first of all, speak to the public and then work with town officials and planners and citizens. And so our approach has been largely educational to start with and then bringing on towns who are interested in long-term proactive planning rather than crisis management to work with them to help them work with the public to identify the vernal pool resources um, on a landowner permission-based um, process and get them all involved and in, in, engaged in this process and then hand them the data and the assessments for the pools and work on them with conservation planning for pools and other natural resources. And we've done this successfully in Falmouth, Maine, and we're currently working with Bar Harbor, and we have two other towns who have signed in that want to work with us. Um, so we're just doing it step by step. And and um, again, I think some listeners to WERU would know what a vernal pool is, but probably you ought to explain that and, and why it's important, why it's important to uh, citizens who might be living nearby. Vernal pools are seasonal wetlands, and they're those, um, some communities uh, have, have colloquial names for these, like Lost Pond is an example of one in Orono, because they disappear by the end of the summer, and they're primary breeding habitat for um, wood frogs, spotted salamanders, blue spotted salamanders, and fairy shrimp in our part of the world. And they're very important for these species for breeding because these animals can't compete with fish, and that's why the seasonal part of this is important. But beyond that, the, the education that we need to be able to get out there is that these vernal pools are really fast food oases in the landscape that provide food and resources for a lot of um, non-vernal pool breeding species. So connectivity among these pools is critical for maintaining populations of lots of other animals that people are concerned about, like turtles or mammals and birds. Um, a lot of our larger species, like moose, deer, and bear, also make use of these fast food o oases in the, in the um, landscape. And so the, the key challenge is to get towns to understand that we need to maintain linkages among these habitats for just overall integrity of um, our ecological communities. So when, when people um, take the time to try to understand the issues and they have some help um, like yours to, to help them understand that, and then they begin to say, okay, well, w what's my role? How do you help them think about um, their role as a landowner or as a member of a, a town planning board? They're the way that they can think about that is that they are empowered to um, influence the character of their town and the quality of their life. And our our goal is to let people make informed decisions. So if, for example, a town decides that, that they don't want to use the data that shows that they have these fantastic resources, they can make that decision, but it will be at least an informed decision. And so citizens can take a look at the data, they can have input, and they can influence um, how the town deals with regulations that are coming from above. Because, of course, towns can have more stringent um, guidelines for protecting natural resources than the state does. And if they choose to do that, at least they'll have the, the database upon which they can make their decisions. And in most cases, um, as David was pointing out earlier, a lot of people live in Maine because of the quality of life and the integrity of our landscapes. And, you know, given this knowledge, uh, they may choose to plan accordingly so that the town still has some natural character 
And increasingly, people are beginning to understand that, you know, when we do have shorebird habitat or we do have intact open spaces, that this actually is a selling point for developments and for economic development and for for tourist dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's making that linkage and bringing it back to how it can improve life in their town. Aram, you you got started, I think, as a as a researcher, and and now are doing um, this kind of public education uh, assistance to communities. Um, talk a little bit about the role of of research in in all of this. Um, um, I didn't. I haven't ended as a researcher. <laughs> well, I know that too. Uh, <laughs> I know that too. <laughs> no, but but. The interesting thing is um, I also work with Maine Audubon as their wetland scientist. So this has allowed me a very interesting position in which I can tailor my research to needs that, that citizens have for natural resource management. So the linkage between the two allows me to do the research and then take it a step further and bring it to the communities in outreach and education and um, technical support in, in doing natural resource planning. Great. And, and as you um, do that, um, do you get uh, people saying, well, what are those instruments that you're using, and, and are, are they curious about science as, as you encounter citizens that, that you know? Absolutely. You might, yeah. when, when you're giving, for example, if you're giving a vernal pool presentation, and you, what I have been able to do is present the science behind the regulations to people to explain to them that these were not arbitrary, and here's what we've discovered about life history needs of whatever species it is or whatever system that you're looking at so that it makes some sense. And, in fact, I've had folks who have come to these meetings opposed to the regulation come up later and say, well, geez, you know, I never really understood how this all works. This is making a little bit more sense to me now. And and that's really the key is bringing in the stakeholders. And, unfortunately, lots of times it's done from top down instead of bottom up. But we can we can help to fix that by making ourselves visible in the community and taking the time to bring the stakeholders to the table and discuss their concerns with them and work on solutions that integrate the concerns of all the stakeholders and meld them with what the existing regulations are and and, and even more creative solutions that we need to go forward with um, that can be devised at the town level. Great. Well, I'll ask of any of our existing guests I mean, in, in the studio if they have any questions for Ram as, as uh, we kind of wind down your portion of the, of the session. Anybody want to ask Aram anything? David? David Hart? Aram, I, uh, first I just want to say that uh, Aram has been a great inspiration to me at, because she's kind of a living, breathing environmental solutions initiative in, unto herself. Uh, and so if we could have many faculty doing what she's doing, and there are others, so it's very exciting to think about growing this, we'd be in great shape. But uh, I wondered, Aram, when, you, when you're working, I know you uh, worked on issues about vernal pools with the forestry industry, and uh, what, what did it take to get them to talk with you, and uh, how we, did you, did you have to go in uh, understanding where they were coming from and being prepared to compromise? What, what kind of strategies work with different stakeholders? Great. Um, um, Philip Demay-Nadier um, from the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife and I um, developed a ha- habitat management guidelines for forestry around vernal pools, and it, and it took about four years for this to come mm. to fruition. And the reason for that is the very first step that we took was to organize a stakeholder meeting to explain that we were going to be doing this and at the outset 
to hear the concerns of loggers. Uh, we invited the commercial forest industry, small woodlot owners, um, other regulators, all uh, main forest service. All these people were brought in on the ground floor to let them know what we were planning on doing to get their feedback and concerns. And then throughout the whole process, as Philip and I developed the guidelines, uh, we ran it by all of these people, and we spent a good deal of time in the field with foresters and with loggers and said, here's what we're, we're thinking of doing. Is this actually possible on the land? And because we wanted buy-in from all the stakeholders, it took years, actually, before we published this manual. But as a result, um, it gets used more widely because we did take stakeholder concerns in, into account and we, we sort of we had the um, uh, imprimatur of, of all of these folks on our publication. But it, it's a long process, and you have to listen, and you have to make compromises, which we did. I don't think everyone is 100% happy, but guess what? We have a manual out there that is being implemented, and we promised these folks that it would be voluntary, and we've kept to that promise in the forest community um, a lot of them are adhering to the, the guidelines that we set forth. So you've got guidelines that will really protect the resource, in this case, vernal pools, and you're asking people to voluntarily um, um, put those guidelines into practice. Correct. That seems like a pretty sensible approach. It's a sensible approach, and it works with the forest industry. I'm not so sure it would work with the development community, but um, we want Maine to remain a working forest state, and in order to do that, we have to to work with the folks in the industry and make sure that it remain, remains economically viable for them while maintaining biodiversity. So, so in that case, both the stakeholder and you as the, as the researcher kind of educator were taking the long view. Correct, absolutely. And that seems to be one of the keys to these kinds of issues is, is trying to figure out how to take that long view and not the short-term um, profit. You have to take a, a long view and listen to everyone's concerns. Otherwise, um, it just doesn't work. You have got to have, as I say, you have to have the, the people who are in the field um, who are going to be affected by any sort of regulation or best management practice on board with you or you've wasted your time. We could have published it in a year and it would have sat on a shelf somewhere. Great. Well, Aram, thanks so much for taking time out of your research and and community uh, schedule to be with us on Talk of the Towns. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. Aram Calhoun is a professor of wetland ecology at the University of Maine, and she was joining us by phone this morning from Lubeck. You can participate if you've got questions or comments with your own experience around the issues of science and place, especially in the lower Penobscot River. Give us a call toll-free 1-866-625-9378 or 469-0500. Perhaps you've got questions for our guests in the studio. Or Greg Burr, who is with the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Uh, Gail Zidluski is the president of the Cove Brook Watershed Council and also coordinates the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition. And David Hart is the director of the Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research at the University of Maine. So give us a call if you've got questions or comments, um, 1-866-625-9378. Um, Aram's story is, is a great one, David. You probably, um, as you said, wish that you had more but you do have more um, folks who are doing this kind of work. Can you point us to some examples in the Lower Penobscot where, where you know that there are, there are connections that you might be making with, with Gail and her partners? Well, let's talk about the uh, dam removal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. restoration project that's um, really, I think, 
going to soon be recognized globally as an Im- really um, ambitious and important effort to kind of um, learn from some of our mistakes in a way. Times have changed. We don't use those dams in quite the same way. They're not quite as important in the energy grid. A lot of dams don't even, not here so much in the Penobscot, but in many parts of the country are old and obsolete and our people are thinking, can we remove these and get some things back and reduce safety and liability concerns? Uh, the Penobscot restoration and the removal of these dams was a really amazing effort by a lot of a lot of bottoms-up community partners, the uh, Penobscot Restoration uh, Trust, which includes groups like uh, the Nature Conservancy and American Rivers and Natural uh, Resources Defense Council of Maine and the Penobscot Indian Nation. Those folks all said, is there a way to do something important for the river? Uh, we've talked a little bit about Atlantic salmon, and we actually know that Atlantic salmon are in bad shape in the United States. Uh, and really, Maine is the last place, and a major scientific report says that if you have any hope of really having this go well, you have to focus on restoration in the Penobscot, and the removal of the dams was given a very high priority, but how to make that work. And so I, I would say the the environmental groups working in partnership with the utility, sitting down and talking about what's is there some common ground here so that the utility didn't have to give up generate, generating capacity? Very important uh, step in the negotiations. Um, but I want to step back for a second and rem- say that this is a good example of how do we make the whole thing work. The, uh, at the same time as the Penobscot restoration plans are moving forward, and it may take several years for this all to work, we have to, there needs to be money to pay for the dams, buy them from the utility, and then to remove them and to do that in a way that will maximize the recovery of a, not just Atlantic salmon, but uh, 10 or 11 species that move back and forth between the ocean and, and uh, upper river regions, that there's also discussion about uh, possibility of tidal energy in the Penobscot River and uh, possible sites in the Verona Island area. Now, that might be a good thing. It's a little bit like a, it's a, like a wind turbine underwater. Um, but, you know, wind turbines, there have been a lot of concerns about what that might do to birds. Well, what about a, a tidal energy? What will that do to fish? We need, when we're thinking about restoring one part of the, remove, uh, the watershed and the river and removing these barriers, we, uh, we have to make sure that the tidal energy won't cause problems so that we don't achieve the goals that we have. So I think this is an example where one thing you need to do is kind of bring all the different parties to the table and say, okay, a watershed is a complex area where many people are doing many different things from an economic standpoint, from a community standpoint, and the environment varies in different settings. How do we think about all of that at once? And how can we chart a course for the dam removals that works well? Maybe tidal energy can be completely compatible compatible with that, maybe it would actually offset some of the benefits. I think one of the real points of the solutions initiative that the Mitchell Center is helping to lead is to provide the objective and credible information that Aram was talking about that help communities and other stakeholders make choices. We want to help search for, identify, and implement solutions that are going to work in the long run. We don't want stakeholders to look back with regrets and say, gee, if only we'd realized this before, we'd, we would have done something very different. That's where I think 
the many faculty at the university not only have the expertise but the great desire to be partners with stakeholders in crafting those kinds of solutions. Mm. And you mentioned the the long-term aspect of this. Um, uh, Aram Calhoun noted that this took um, years to work out the the voluntary guidelines for the forest industry, for instance. So none of these are quick fixes. Yes, and I I would say that it'll be just a little bit of a cultural cultural challenge for the world of university life, uh, for the university to understand that when faculty step out from their kind of departmental setting in their office and go out into communities and work in these partnerships, there are some other goals that are very important and very deserving of university. It mean that they publish a few less papers per, per year because they're spending a lot of time on the ground. Listen to Aram talk about having to go out into these communities and listen, probably listen again and again and again. And probably some of the listening was even a little bit difficult because maybe the communities felt like the university's coming into your community and telling you what to do. Well, you can tell from Aram's uh, powerful message that that isn't what she was mm. trying to do. But, of course, well, not the, every... The model is as professor. You're professing instead yeah. of listening. So yeah. maybe we need some title changes as well. well professor, the, listener. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, hopefully the coalition, if we're building that in the lower Penobscot, there'll be more of a mechanism to, to be more in touch with the communities. And I should point out that <clears throat> I'm also at the University of yes. Maine in a research Great capacity. Research. And interestingly, I'm involved in the... Tide, the beginning discussions of the tidal energy that's happening in the Lower Penobscot, which I also intend to bring to the coalition. An interesting process, but hopefully all of that can be integrated, kind of like what what David was Mm -hmm. mentioning. And I think having the the coalition members and building that group so that we have more and more of the communities involved will will have that mechanism, the people in place, to have the communication so that each professor potentially doesn't have to go to every community. Right. And then it, it might be a better um, tool. Mm. I'll list our phone numbers one more time because I know there are people out there listening who are fascinated with this topic of intersections of science and place on the Lower Penobscot. one 625 or locally 469 Gail, what are some of the research things that are bubbling up? Um, you're fairly new in terms of the Lower Penobscot River Watershed Coalition, but what some of the, the, the besides um, tidal power, for instance, what are some of the issues that might be bubbling up that may serve as a, a project for a grad student or something down the road? One of the things that was was brought up from the beginning, well, is um, culvert crossings um, in the Lower Penobscot. Greg actually brought that up right from the start, and um, recently the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Maine Forest Service, and TNs, the Nat- Nature Conservancy, have been talking about doing assessments throughout the Lower Penobscot. And um, right now we're at the point of determining how many crossings and how many. Um, how many barriers to migration for fish there are out there. Um, there are at least, I think they've identified 1,000, 1,000, and that's probably, that's what's on maps, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily always indicative of what's out there. So some of the research is just is kind of status, finding out the status of mm-hmm. the resource and some of the, the, the problems that are out there before you can even begin to, to solve them. Right, mm-hmm. and there are some some of some things along the way that are happening nationwide that need to be brought to the mm-hmm. to this region. Well, we have a caller. Let's go ahead and take a, a phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Charlie Hitchings in Cherryfield, and um, I'm just kind of ago. There seemed to be an awful lot about um, draining anything that had mosquito larvae in it, 
um, because of West Nile virus, and I was wondering how that squares with the vernal pool. <laughs> That's a great question. Our vernal pool expert is is uh, um, not on the line, but maybe there's someone here that uh, has some thoughts about that. But thanks for your question this morning. All right. Four uh, four six nine zero five hundred or toll free one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yes, we are a complex society, and and sometimes the solution we find in one case is damaging something in another. Anybody got any comments about draining um, areas for for uh, mosquitoes? I mean, I think that's that's been the classic um, situation. We've mm-hmm. we've sprayed areas for um, um, mosquito control and so on, and and uh, the, the people in Long Island Sound I know are quite concerned because, um, gee, um, the lobster and the mosquito are related in some way, and the same chemicals that kill mm-hmm. mosquito are influencing the lobster. So we've got to be careful with those kinds of. Um, quick fixes, I guess. Um, if someone was able to study the issue, they might find other ways to, to manage uh, mosquitoes. Um, so the, 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 the culverts, for instance, um, why are culverts a problem to brook trout or, or other fish species? Uh, what gets in the way? What, what happens is, is that these culverts are put in and they're put in improperly. They're undersized to handle the flows. Uh, they, they, when they're, they're put in, they're not put down in deep enough. Um, they, uh, and what they do is they, they serve to uh, fragment fish populations. Mm-hmm. And, and people may be listening saying, well, gee, you know, I know that the, the same fish populations are upstream of the culvert that they are downstream. When the fragmentation we sometimes talk about is, is not, um, um, not so that uh, they, they've stopped them from going up or, or that there aren't populations of above and below, but the, also the genetic fragmentation of the genetic diversity that needs to happen um, in, within those populations. I'm not talking just about trout, but also all the fish species uh, above and below culverts and things. And they also do uh, pose a barrier for upstream migrations, and sometimes you have populations of, of fish that were, were once up above that, that crossing, that area, are, are no longer there, um, so it's it's very important to uh, to to, uh, to uh, re- replace these these culverts that uh, that were put in improperly. And when you talk to to the landowners or contractors who have done this, they said, "Gee, Greg, we didn't, we, know. We didn't know, right? You know, um, and and we're fishermen, um, <laughs> or right. we're people that are very concerned about the environment. Right. And so uh, the department, and along with the Department of Environmental Protection, is uh, trying to go out and and educate uh, contractors uh, and landowners about you know this is the best way to do this. When we look at a stream, you look at uh, the width of the um, of the stream. You want to uh, advise that to, to put a culvert in. You we're, we we really like to have uh, bridges and open bottom arch culverts that preserve the natural stream bottom. Um, and also, you've got allows migration not just for aquatic organisms but terrestrial organisms mm-hmm. um, that would have to go around that culvert and up over across the road and and be, get hit. Great. So, very important issue. Great. Well, we're going to find that the magic of the community radio allows Aram Calhoun to be back with us um, <laughs> here to answer the question about um, um, mosquitoes and, and uh, wet, wet areas. Aram, welcome back. Hi, thanks. I just wanted to, to clarify, and that was a very good question. The caller um, asked that the West Nile mosquito is not the same one that's associated with vernal pools. So the vernal pool mosquitoes are indeed annoying. Uh, Many of them get eaten by the larvae of the salamanders uh, that are in the pools. But the West Nile, um, you're more likely to get that from mosquitoes breeding in tire ruts and and old tires left out and pails and buckets around your property. 
than from vernal pools. I just wanted to make that clear that it's a, it's a different animal. Great. Thanks for the science. Okay. Aran, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. What if um, people just want to not have mosquitoes on their land and they'd rather not have a vernal pool there? <laughs> She gone? I think she's okay, she's probably sorry. gone. So we do want to um, kind of wrap up maybe with your individual hopes of where this will all be in five years. Um, Gail, where do you want the um, the Lower Penobscot River Watershed Coalition to be in five years' time? Well, I'm hopeful that we have a really nice network of people who are helping to raise awareness around watershed issues within all of the communities in the Lower Penobscot. Mm. So that, that would be my big hope. And then when we started talking about vi- visioning, um, thinking about a vision, my the first thing that popped into my mind is Maine, the the way life should be. Mm-hmm. So going back, <laughs> just coming to that back place. to that right, idea. Right. Yeah. Greg, what's your hope in terms of of your work with um, inland fisheries and wildlife kinds of issues and, and the things we've been talking about? What's your hope for the future? Well, tying into what Gail said, I think uh, people move here to Maine or live here in Maine because it's a slice of the American dream, mm. and we hope to be able to see these communities are starting to think about this and and planning for the future for riparian protection along these these rivers and streams. Great. Uh, David David Hart, um, what's your hope for for Environmental Solutions Initiative and and these kinds of things in five years' time? My hope is that the university can become an even more powerful organization serving stakeholders, bringing their tremendous breadth of expertise on both the human dimensions of environmental problems, things like the values and attitudes that people and organizations have, uh, together with their kind of more technical knowledge about brook trout and culverts and uh, engineering solutions build to minimize our kind of footprint, uh, to, to bring that all to bear, but really in powerful partnerships so that we know we're working on issues that communities really care about and that when we successfully assess the problem and deliver options to communities that we we have a greater chance that they're prepared to put those into practice and again so that later on we don't look back and say gee we had this wonderful place and what what happened mm. uh, if we can avoid that uh, it will be a wonderful story great well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us on the second Friday at this time for Family Radio Forum and on the third Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Our shows are now archived at weru.org. Click on Archives. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, David Hart, Director of the Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research, and Gail Zidluski of, of the Cove Brook Watershed Council and coordinator of the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition. Greg Burr from the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. And joining us by phone earlier was Aram Calhoun, a professor of wetland ecology at the University of Maine. Thanks to those of you who called in, and uh, thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.